Dark clouds loom, and they do in the lives of believers. Let's be honest. Believers have dark days, dark hours, difficult trials, fiery ovens, deep valleys. He said, even though there's dark clouds in your life, and it seems to be very, very bleak out there, and all that can go wrong goes wrong, God is still working out His plan. God is still at work working out his plan. For God is able to make all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So no matter what's going on in your life, I'm going to say it again, God is still working out his plan. God's got a plan. And it's a marvelous plan, a powerful plan, a beautiful plan, and one that we could never have come up with on our own. Now, in the context here, Habakkuk and the children of Israel were surrounded by trouble. Uh, the legal system of Judah had completely disintegrated and collapsed. Uh, her citizens were being treated violently. Judah was on the downturn. Judgment was at the door. The Babylonians were marching toward them. It, it would be as if uh, uh, we woke up today and turned on the news and, and we were told on the news that the Russians were marching our way with ill intent. And, and that's what they woke up to. They woke up to this. The Babylonians were coming, and they were fearsome, frightening, scary. They were cruel, torturous, and they were marching their way. And they didn't have anything good in mind for them. This is Judah, and this is because of Judah's backsliding. So Judah was in a backslidden state with an enemy coming her way, an evil foreign power, and it was tough times. So he speaks, so Habakkuk speaks this word, the vision is yet for an appointed time. Don't give up on your calling God. Don't let your destiny go. At the end it will speak and it will not lie. Don't think that just because you're in troubled times, God has forgotten his promise. He has not. So I, I, I want the, the, you children of Israel, I want you to be encouraged. You children of Judah, I want you to take heart. Now, now, I want you to hold that thought a moment. Let me tell you the story of two brothers. Once there were two young brothers. One was a pessimist, and the other was an optimist. Nothing could satisfy the pessimist. Yet the optimist was irretrievably, unstoppably, inexorably positive. Somehow he found good in everything. How many of you know somebody that way? How many of you wish it were that way? Okay. Now, as you can imagine, the pessimist gave his parents fits because they couldn't make him happy. Nothing they did made this boy happy. So they decided, listen, there's, there's got to be something that will finally put a smile on his face. So they really essentially built him his own private Disney world in his room, uh, filled his room with the, the best toys, full-sized, arcade-sized video games lined the wall, bicycles, remote control trains, skateboards, giant screen televisions, and high-tech sound systems with endless music CDs adorned every square inch of this pessimist private sanctuary. But he was still miserable. What to do? But inexplicably, the optimist was the total opposite. He didn't need a thing to wear a smile. Ever-present skip in his step, gleam in his eye, ready laughter were his identifying trademarks, this optimist. Now, 
how in the world could these two boys be so different having come from the same parents? What was the deal here? What drove one to see the proverbial cup half empty all the time and the other one saw it half full all the time? What in the world went wrong here? The parents were completely stumped, unable to squeeze one thimble full of positive attitude out of the pessimist. They wondered if, conversely, they could somehow break the optimist. I don't know why they would want to do that. But did he have a breaking point? Because if, we could, if he could somehow be deterred from his boundless enthusiasm, if, uh, then, then maybe they could at least understand how he got that way. Or maybe they could learn his secret and transfer the secret to their hapless, pessimistic son. So the parents decided to try an experiment. They removed all of the optimist toys out of his room. Get ready now. They filled half of his room with nothing but horse manure. Yes, you heard that in church. Nothing but horse manure. Handed him a shovel and shut the door. Surely, they thought, he's going to emerge with a very negative attitude. What could he possibly do with horse manure and a shovel? Minutes stretched to hours without a sound. What in the world was taking so long? They were sitting outside the door wondering, what's going on with this kid? Is he in the middle of the room crying? Is he about to have a breakdown? Why didn't he come out and say something to us, complain about the way his room was? And, and, and surely he can't make something positive out of this. And finally, unable to stand the suspense any longer, the parents approached the room, slowly turned the doorknob, and peeked inside. And what did they see? The little optimist with his shovel, was shoveling that manure from one side of the room to the other as fast as he could go, smiling and whistling, praising God. Totally taken back, the father blurted, what are you doing shoveling this manure from one side of the room to the other? The boy smiled and replied, there's a pony in here somewhere. You get that? Now, I really like this little guy. I do. Because, listen, he teaches me a lot about us and our walk with God. Now, listen carefully to me, because this will, this will give you something to take home and put in your pocket and use tomorrow morning. Are you ready? This little boy could never have been optimistic like he was if he had not believed two crucial things. He had to believe two crucial things or he would never have been optimistic. What did he have to believe? First, he had to believe that his parents were inherently good. He had to. Or why would he expect to find a pony in manure? Something good in the midst of something bad. So he had to believe my parents are good they are inherently good. Now, folks, I've told you all the time, it matters so much what you believe about God. See, there's people that believe that God is just mean and bad, furrowed brows, steam coming out of his ears, long face, just waiting for you and me to make a mistake so he can stomp on us and condemn us and judge us because after all, he's just mad at us all the time. If you believe that about God, you may be saved, but you're going to have a miserable Christian life. And you know what? You're not going to have many prayers answered because you believe that God is not good. You believe God is mad. 
But I got news for you. If you're under the blood of Jesus, God is not mad. God is glad if you're under the blood of Jesus. Because he took out all of his wrath and all of his anger and all of his judgment on Jesus. When Jesus hung on that cross, he took your sin and my sin and God poured the blame and the guilt and the condemnation on him. And that's why he cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me for, a, for just a brief period of time? God pulled back and Jesus was blamed and judged for our sins. I don't know how God did that. It's a mystery intellectually, but it's a fact. That's what he did. Jesus did not literally become a sinner, but he did become the sacrificed lamb. He took your sin and mine, and that's the only way your sin will ever be absolved, ever washed away, ever forgiven, is the blood of the lamb. You can't go try to make yourself right with God. You can't go to any God of your choosing you can't go hug a tree and say, well, you know, I, I thank God and love his creation until you go to Jesus at the foot of the cross and allow the blood to cover you, then you are guilty before God and you will answer to God and you will die in your sins. And that's just the gospel truth. But see, when you come to him and the blood covers you, then the wrath of God, the anger of God is taken off of our life. And so God's not walking around mad at us, but it matters how you view God. How do you view God today? Is he out to get you? Is he out to stomp you? Is he out to judge you? Or is he out to get you blessed? Is he out to get you right? Is he out to get you healed? Is he out to get you delivered? So he had to believe that the parents were inherently good, and so do we. We've got to believe that our Heavenly Father is inherently good. Without an unbending belief that they intended good for him at all times... No matter how it looked, he would never have been optimistic and would never have looked for something positive in the presence of so much negative. He said, my parents are good, so there's got to be something good in here. Amen. Second, he had to believe that they were in charge of what came his way. He had to believe they were in control because it was their house and the room they'd given him. So he had to believe that no matter what it looked like in his room, which was in their house, that God was still in charge. If he hadn't have believed that, he would have been a worried mess, wringing his hands about how in the world did all this manure get in my room, in my parents' house? Where did this come? Something is wrong. Something is amiss. Things are out of control. What am I going to do? But instead, so I want you to say it with me. He believed that they were good. Say it with me. He believed they were good. And he believed they were in charge. Now I want you to say with me, I believe God is good. And I believe God is in charge. And that he loves me and wants the best for me. He believed in their love for him and that they were in charge of what came his way. And therefore he could afford to be optimistic. Positive. On top of things. Upbeat. In our text, God was telling Habakkuk, yeah, there's an army coming your way, and yeah, you guys have messed up, and yeah, there's all kinds of, of issues and problems in your land, but stay with it, don't quit, don't despair. The vision is coming. God loves you. He hasn't given up on you. He hasn't walked out on you. He's still got a plan, and he's working out that plan, so lift up your heads and have hope. 
In other words, Habakkuk was telling them, there's a pony in here somewhere. I want us to try that out because you're going to do it several times today. Are you ready? Let me just start. No matter what you're going through, there's a No matter what your kids are doing, no matter what your marriage looks like, y'all have got it good already. Now, the, the Bible is full of examples like this, but I want to bring out three men in the Bible who all went through different things, and they believed that God was good, and that God was in charge, and that God loved them, and that's what brought them through to the other side, holding their pony in their arms. Okay? First one was Abraham, the father of our faith. Now, I would be not telling you the full truth if I didn't tell you that for a couple of uh, uh, times, there were a couple of times in Abraham's life where he did faint. He fainted in his faith and messed up or, 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 or kind of doubted God. So he was not a perfect man. But Abraham primarily remained optimistic in the face of perplexing timing. Abraham's test was the timing of God, the timing of things. Because you see, God appeared to him and said, I'm going to give you a son. And I'm going to give you this son, and this son is going to be uh, he, the first of your descendants. And through your descendants, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. But for all the nations of the world to be blessed, it's got to begin with you having a son. No son, no blessing, no dream, no vision fulfilled, nothing. You've got to have a son. He's key to everything else. All right, when he received that, he was 75 years old. But God's timing proved to be perplexing. Months stretched into years, which stretched into decades. And that long time gap, folks, was the manure, as it were, that Abraham had to shovel through. That time gap. The time between God's promise and God's fulfillment. There was a long pause. And he had to believe God. He had to believe God during that time. He had to believe in the character of God. And here's what it comes down to. If you listen to the voice of the devil in your mind, he will always undermine and attack the character of God. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't answer prayer. He's not in your life. He's looking the other way. He's not dependable. The Bible's not true. You can go through all these things. He'll attack the character of God, which is exactly what he did with Eve in the garden. Oh, you don't understand, Eve. God's holding back from you. He doesn't want you to be wise like him. Attack, attack, attack. The only reason that Eve ate that forbidden fruit was because she began to doubt that God was good. So when we say around here God is good all the time, it's not just a little uh, religious slogan. We really mean it. Because you win battles believing God is good. You really do. But that, that long time gap just began to work on him. Now, during this time, the father of our faith went through some very gut-wrenching experiences. He, he gave up his country, gave up his family, began walking in a direction not even knowing where he was going. 
He was just going in the right direction. He just started walking. I trust God. I left my homeland behind, my family behind, and I'm going forward in the call of God. And you know what? I'm doing it because I believe God is good and won't burn me. He parted ways with his nephew Lot. They had a, they had a, a, a um, tearing apart in their relationship. And Lot went towards Sodom to his own demise and left Abraham with his wife and some servants and cattle. But still there was a ripping apart of a relationship that really mattered to him during this waiting time. And, and here's most of all, throughout all of these things, the barrenness of Sarah tested his faith daily. Barrenness is when something ought to live and it's not. Something ought to be, and it's not. Barrenness is a daily letdown, a daily disappointment. And you can be barren in a lot of ways, not just with wanting a child. You can be barren financially. You can be barren in your marriage. You can be barren with friendships, relationships. You ought to have some friends and you don't. You ought to have... You ought to have some other key relationship in your life and it's, it's suffering, it's not producing, it's not giving, it's, it's barren. And he faced this barrenness and, and what really made it difficult was he had a promise that she would have a child and yet daily barrenness stared him in the face. And he was getting old. He was approaching a hundred. Sarah was almost 90. Can I just go ahead and say it? The thrill was gone. Well, these are real people. Their ability to reproduce, have children was gone. Now, I want you to catch this. But, but Abraham, the father of our faith, remained optimistic in spite of God's perplexing timing. One of my favorite verses, Romans 4.18. Listen to this. I love this. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping. Boy, I like that. He woke up every day and said, honey, how are you feeling? Well, nope, not pregnant. I'm not pregnant. It, it, it's not happening. And every single day he looked, he looked his, his physical eyes looked at why he should quit. Looked at why he should quit hoping. Because she's 90 now. He's 100. In the natural, it's over. They can't produce. And this faced him Every day. But the father of our faith said, even though I have no natural reason to hope, I'm still going to keep on hoping. Because my God is not dependent on the natural circumstances of life. Faith, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And, and, and he said, I'm going to keep my eye on the promise of God, not on the reasons why I should quit. Oh, I'm talking to somebody today. I know I am. Because some of you are looking at an impossibility. You're looking at something that is dead. You are looking at barrenness, and the enemy is saying to you, why don't you just give up and quit and go home, pick up your marbles and go home and forget about it? Because clearly God is not answering you, and yet God has said to you in your heart, though it tarry, it shall come. Though it tarry, my vision will still come to pass. Don't give up. 
Don't give in. It says, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing, believing that he would become the father of many nations. See, the impossibility was God's problem. So you know what he was saying to himself, essentially? Say it with me. There's a pony in here somewhere. Even though, boy, this doesn't look good, even though this doesn't look promising, even though this looks difficult, I believe that God's going to come through and I'm going to hold my pony. So I whistle while I shovel. I whistle while I shovel. So he remained optimistic in the presence of perplexing timing. But then there was Joseph. I can't read the story of Joseph without weeping at the end of it every time. Seriously. And I've read it through many times in my life. But every time I get to the end, I tear up. What a story. What a drama. This, this accurate historical account of the life of Joseph. He was Jacob's son. There were 12 boys representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph was Rachel's son. And she only had two before she died. And the Bible says that Jacob loved Rachel, but not Leah. Leah gave him ten boys. Rachel gave him two. Joseph was one of the two. And he loved Joseph so much he gave him a coat of many colors, which represents the favor of the father. Fatherly favor. And what Joseph found out real quick is when your father favors you and gives you a coat that testifies that he favors you, don't expect everybody to jump up and shout with you. That's where jealousy comes from when an anointing comes on your life or blessing comes on your life. Or some door opens to you, and, and it's a marvelous door, a wonderful door, and you go tell your friends, hey, guess what? The Father has given me a coat of many colors. I've been favored. Don't expect them to go, oh, praise God. No, the green-eyed monster jumps on more people than not. Really, he gave it to you and not me. Why you and not me? And that was the brother's. And, and Joseph didn't know any better than to tell his brothers his dream. Hey, guys, I had a dream, and I dreamed that all of you were bowing down to me. Can you believe that? <laughs> and he thought they would say, oh, that's a heavy dream. Praise God. But inside they said, really? Well, here, let me tell you what we're thinking. We're going to kill you. So... His dreams didn't bless his brothers, and as you know, they threw him into a pit, were thinking about killing him, ended up selling him into Egyptian slavery. Now, he went into Egyptian slavery, into a country he didn't know, a language he didn't speak, a people he wasn't familiar with, customs he didn't recognize. They, the brothers, ripped off that coat. That was what they hated. They ripped off that coat of many colors before they sent him down the river. And they killed an animal and spilled animal blood on it. In those days, no DNA, no way to tell if it was human or animal. And they took it to his daddy. Think about this. They took it to Jacob. He said, Who, whose coat is this? He said, well, that's my son Joseph's. And they said, oh, dad, we found it like this, all torn up and there's blood all over it. And Jacob said, oh, no, a wild animal. 
has torn to pieces my son. And they let him think that for years. That's cruel. Broke his heart. The apple of his eye torn apart by wild animals. But in the meantime, Joseph is down in Egypt. Not only is he betrayed by his brothers, but he's working for Potiphar, who was high up in Pharaoh's kingdom. And Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and lied about him and said he tried to rape her. And he was thrown into prison for something he didn't do. So he was betrayed by his brothers. And he was betrayed by Potiphar's wife. And here he is down in a prison for something he did not do. He's thinking back to his dad and the beautiful land they lived in and how happy their family had been. And he, he's longing for those happier days. And he, and he opens his eyes and he can't believe he's sitting in an Egyptian prison for something he did not do. Now, most people right then would have said, I'm mad at God, bitter at life. Don't talk to me about God stuff. Because everything has gone wrong with me, so there can't be a God and he can't be in charge. But I tell you that Joseph leaned on a truth. And you know what it was? God is good. And God is in charge. And God loves me. And if that's not what anchored his soul, then I don't know what could possibly have anchored his soul. He said, God is good. And you know what he said? There is a... Let's try that again. He looked around at the prison. He looked at the stinking conditions. He looked at his ornery brothers. He looked at the lying Potiphar's wife. And still he said, there's a pony. Why did he say that? He said that because I know God is good. And I know the God that called me is good. And I know that God is not only good, but God is in charge. And not only in charge, but he loves me. And since he's good and he's in charge, somehow, some way, someday, he's going to make all this work together for my good, and there's going to be a pony in my arms. So he said to his brothers when they finally were reconciled with him years and years later, and they thought he was going to order them executed, which he would have been just in doing. He said, I'm not going to execute you. I'm going to take care of you. And let me tell you why. Because what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good to save many people alive. He said, now I see God's plan. I've been made second only to Pharaoh. This land is about to see a seven-year famine. People all over the world are going to die. But I have stored up grain, and I'm going to feed my betraying brothers, and I'm going to feed my daddy Jacob. And in doing so, I'm going to keep the lineage alive that brings forth Messiah. God had a plan. So Abraham per persevered through perplexing timing, Joseph through heartbreaking betrayal, and there's one more, David. David remained optimistic through prolonged persecution. Prolonged persecution. You know the story of the ripe young age of 17. Samuel called him out of the field, Samuel the great prophet, who just walked into a room, and everybody shut up, and they were terrified. He was so intimidating. The word of God never failed from his lips, the Bible says. So Samuel pays a visit to Jesse's household, and he's looking for the next king because Saul has been disallowed, disqualified. So he says, bring me your boys because the king is somewhere in this house. Seven boys went before him, tall, 
handsome, charismatic, impressive. And every time the Spirit of God said, not him, not him, 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 or him, or him, or him. Well, then who? Where? He's in the field. Go get him. David's out there. He's been falling in love with God, playing the harp, being prepped by the Holy Spirit to be king, and he didn't even know it. They call him in. He comes in, and here's Samuel. Samuel's got the flask of oil. He says, come here, son. The Holy Spirit said to Samuel, there's the king. Anoint him. He dumps that oil on his head. It poured down his hair, poured down his beard, poured down his clothing, anointed him with enough oil to slide him into the next room. It was anointed to be king. Well, after that, you would think life would go great. But no, no. Well, at first, Saul received him into the royal palace. The people of Israel fell in love with him. Well, that makes sense. I'm the next king. Saul's son, Jonathan, became his very best friend, so he had a real inside track. But then the women of Israel came out with a top 40 hit song. And it went like this. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Remember what I told you about that coat of many colors? The coat of favor? It was sitting on David, and the green-eyed monster rose up in Saul. It says, from that day forward, David became Saul's enemy. Saul turned the entire kingdom against David through false accusation. He went from a hero to a zero. The song that said Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands, changed. And the song went, don't let your son grow up to be like David. He made David number one on the Israeli most wanted list. David had to flee. He marshaled his troops. Saul did. Marshaled his troops to search for him day and night. The Bible says that David lived in the open fields and in caves in the wilderness, never knowing if this day would be his last day. He slept with one eye open because Saul, a very capable, competent man, was on the hunt for him day and night and night and day. It got so bad he sought refuge in the very king of the Philistines, whose champion, Goliath, David had killed. He's defected. In a moment of terrible personal judgment and a drop in his faith, David had even been willing to go with the Philistines against his own people, but the Philistine generals would not allow it. David was willing to go with the Philistines in battle against Israel, but God stopped it so that it would not hinder him from becoming king. He did not allow him to make a fatal mistake. Dejected, rejected, David said to his men, let's go back to Ziklag where they've been staying. As they journeyed back to Ziklag, we read that there was a curl of smoke wafting into the air. Their hearts began to pound. They thought, oh no, oh no, oh no. They knew what a destroyed city looked like. And as they drew near, they saw that it was totally burned to the ground and their wives and children and all their goods were kidnapped by the wicked Amalekites. And David fell on his face. And to make matters worse, he lifted up his, ear, his eyes and, and saw his men standing there holding stones. And they were talking about stoning David. We're so sick of following this guy where all we encounter is these problems and these troubles and these letdowns. It couldn't have gotten worse, but then it says, and I love this, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Now let me ask you a question. How did he do that? 
Bible doesn't tell us what he said, but I know what he had to think. He had to think this. I know that God is good. The God that told Samuel to anoint me with oil is good. I can trust in his character. I can trust in his integrity. And I also know that he's in charge. So knowing that he's good and he's in charge, even though it couldn't look worse out here, you talk about manure, you talk about negative circumstances, what else could have gone wrong with him up to this point but this? But he encouraged himself, the Lord is God. And then when he encouraged himself, he said, God, shall I go and attack the Amalekites? And God said, go and attack them for you will recover everything. You will get everything back. He stood up and said, man, put those stones down and let's go. And they went and they attacked the Amalekites and defeated the Amalekites, rescued their wives and children, got everything back. And within a few short weeks, he was made king of Israel. Now, These three men all received their pony in the midst of trial and trouble. Abraham's pony was Isaac, and he held him. He watched him grow, watched his, got to know his grandchildren. His pony was Isaac, the child of promise. Joseph's pony was his God dream fulfilled. David's pony was the throne of Israel. Going through a valley and going through a trial, what brought them through it to the other side. Say it with me. God is good. God is in charge. And He loves me. There's a pony in here somewhere. Can we stand up together today? Now I'm going to ask there to be as little movement as possible unless it's down here. Because you know what I, I know in my heart as I prayed over the, these services today? I know that there are people in here who are in a real trial, a real valley, and it might be perplexing timing. It might be prolonged persecution. Whatever it is, I want you to say today, God is good. And He's in charge. Tomorrow when you get up and you're faced with that problem again, I want you to recite it. God is good and God is in charge. And there's a pony in here somewhere. You see this building? This building is one of my ponies. I've got quite a few ponies I carry around. And I've, I'm also shoveling through some things where I know I'm going to get another pony. But with your heads bowed, you say, Pastor Jeff, this was for me today. And I am in a struggle. And I needed this. This was for me. This was right to me. And I need that extra injection of faith to keep on walking, keep on persevering until I reach the other side with pony in my arms. The pony in my arms. I want you to raise your hand today. That's you. Many of you. Now, in the first service, right about now, a woman, without my saying a word, just came out and almost ran to the altar and just bowed and began to call out on God right here. And when I saw that, I said, if you two want to come, come. And people just, just fill the altar. 
giving their trial to God. So I'm going to say, if you need to give this to God, I want you to come down now. There, Jesus is in this altar. If you raise your hand, come down. Because we're going to pray together. We're going to lock faith together. And we're going to believe God to carry you through the other side. Carry you through to the other side with a pony in your arms. Thank you, Lord. I sense the sweet Holy Spirit here right now. I want all of you in this altar to know how much He loves you. Some of you have been through hell and back. Some of you have been ripped apart by betrayal. Greatly tested by timing. Persecuted. Rejected. It's on me right now just to tell you how much God loves you. How much God loves you. His love is greater than anything you're walking through. And neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come can separate you from the love of God. And I want you to know, I'm going to speak a word, a prophetic word right now. Your broken heart is being bound up as you stand on this altar. Something is happening in your broken heart. God is the binder up of the broken in heart. And the great surgeon is touching your heart right now. Encouragement is going to replace discouragement. Fresh vision is going to replace disillusionment. Your God is good. Though people aren't, God is good. Father, I come to you with these precious people who are going through a dark hour, a dark time, a trying time. Lord, this word that you gave to me that came to them is for all of us. And Lord, we lock faith and we grab hold of the promise of God that Lord, you are good and nothing can alter that. And you intend good. And that good will be revealed. It will come out in the end. As it was said of Job. Who saw what the Lord had planned in the end. James said that Job saw what was planned in the end. It became clear. And so Lord we thank you for it right now in Jesus name. And I pray that, Lord, you will give a fresh revelation, a fresh vision, a fresh touch to these precious people in this altar and many in the congregation and many watching by streaming video and listening by radio. Give them a touch right now. The touch of the Holy Spirit, the touch of God that lifts us up. 
that if God be for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors for Him who loved us. In the name of Jesus. Now lift your hands, dear saints of God. And let Him touch you right now. We're going to sing a stanza.